training in, in the altitude or the simulated altitude environment enables me to train uh, at a lower intensity. So I don't need to lift, you know, 85, 90% of my 1RM to maintain muscle mass. You're listening to the Fitness Industry Podcast, powered by Australian Fitness Network. For articles, resources, and inspiration to grow your fitness business and career, go to fitnessnetwork.com.au, where you can also find a huge range of online courses accredited for CECs and other professional development credits, with up to a massive 30% saving for members of Australian Fitness Network. And for face-to-face learning, network members also save on standard rates for Filex, the fitness industry convention. In this episode, High Performance Specialist Professor Chris McClellan discusses the protocols and benefits of simulated altitude training, as well as the practicalities for making it part of your fitness business, with the Fitness Industry Podcast's Oliver Kitchingman. Chris, thank you for joining the Fitness Industry Podcast. Excellent, Ollie. Thank you, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Chris, one of your well, one of the things that you're well known for talking about is altitude training. It's one of your areas of specialty. Presumably, it's not just for people that are going to trek up Everest. So, can you just kind of elaborate and, and tell us what altitude training is? Yeah, excellent point, and you're 100 percent on the money. So, I guess traditionally, what what we talk about more in the mainstream health and fitness industry is a simulated altitude training as opposed to the traditional altitude training model. What we're talking about in a, in a simulated altitude environment is reproducing or emulating the kind of environment, so oxygen availability, that people would experience if they were to go to real altitude. So go up to Everest, or well, not Everest, but go up to base camp and places like that. So traditionally, it's been thought of very much as just for athletes and particularly endurance type training on the back of the fact that we know that there are some changes we see, for example, in red blood cells, hematocrit, and various blood measures when you expose people to this type of what we call hypoxic environment. So hypoxic just means low low oxygen availability effectively. So, but what I talk about more in health and fitness is the broader application of this type of training for mainstream. So for things like body composition, fat loss, muscle mass, those types of applications, which there's a growing body of evidence that that is very supportive of. So we're taking it away from just the the athletes of the world and the endurance athletes of the world and the people who want to go to base camp, which you could use it for that, absolutely. But I think what we're looking at now is how do we take this type of training and make it more mainstream? And that's fundamentally what what we're talking about. Okay, so what would that look like in a fitness studio or a club? Yeah, so literally that, that would be a designated space. So let's call it a chamber. That is a, a, a room that has a modified environment. And, and so there are various ways that can be done. Fundamentally, it's a manipulation of the air content in the room to modify using nitrogen fundamentally, which is part of our air anyway. But in a normal room, so in here right now, we've got about 20% oxygen, between 20, 21% oxygen, maybe 78% nitrogen. So what what happens in the, in an altitude chamber through a series of filters and so forth is a manipulation of that. And so let's say you went up to a mountain that was, let's say, 3,200 metres high. 
that would have an oxygen availability of around 14%. So theoretically, we, well, technically, we can manipulate the air in the room to emulate that. So the room has only 14% oxygen instead of 20%. That then brings about a lot of the, the physiological changes that we see and, and brings on the benefits of this type of training. But literally, it's a, it's a designated space, a room. It could be a whole gym. There's no real limitation to the amount of floor space uh, that's probably going to be limited by budget, uh, but it could be a, a, just a small room, you know, a, a single office space type room, or it could be a, a very thousand square metres. It could be anything, really. It could be a pool. What's the largest space that you've, that you've encountered? Uh, the largest one I've seen is, is around about, it would be 400 square metres, which was a full gym set up, four or 500 square metres that had all of the usual, you would walk into that space and you didn't even know it was an altitude chamber. It just looked like a standard gym with, you know, racks and barbells and the whole lot. And I, I guess that takes us into, you know, what type of training you do in there. The answer's everything. Health, cardio, strength, intervals, you know, hit sessions, a lot of functional training. Everyone's into, you know, the functional training these days. So that's that's all of those things. Sleds, you know, the whole lot. That that's the type of training you can do in this environment. Yeah, so it's just a, basically it's your regular workout in a different environment. That's exactly what it is. The difference is that because it's a different environment and there's less oxygen available, the trainer's got to manipulate the workout. Otherwise, people you can't you can't just take your your workout that you did at sea level and try and do exactly that with the same. I'm talking about you have to manipulate the recovery because you would find that incredibly difficult to do because if there's less oxygen in the room, there's less oxygen ultimately that makes its way to the muscle and you got to get some recovery. So we end up in a conversation around things like lactate and lactic acid and hydrogen ions and that sort of thing. So, you know, you, whereas you might normally train, I don't know, let's say you're doing sort of 30 seconds of work and you might only normally have 30 seconds rest, in a chamber you're probably going to need three times that or four times that, depending on the intensity of the exercise. But generally, absolutely, you will do the same type of training as you would do in, a, in any normal gym environment. And the equipment in there will be exactly that. It'll be everything from your treadmills to dumbbells to racks to the whole lot. Okay, interesting. I mean, it sounds, I, I was recently working on, on a piece by, uh, on blood flow restriction or occlusion, as it's um, often called. Yeah. It sounds as though there may be some similar effects. Absolutely. And there's been some really good research done with the blood flow restriction or the intermittent occlusion type of work. So absolutely, think that type of training, but on a whole body scale. So the changes we see when we occlude the blood flow, so we see some changes at a muscle level, mainly around the, the what we call metabolic byproducts. And again, everyone thinks, everyone knows what lactate is. Everyone, you know, is familiar with that and hydrogen ions and these, these waste products, if you will, around exercise. And that will stimulate those byproducts, then stimulate downstream changes within the muscle. And that brings about the adaptation. The limitation to that type of training is that using the tourniquets to restrict blood flow, really you're limited to working your arms and your legs. Pretty much that's it. So in a simulated altitude environment, what we're doing is we're limiting oxygen, which is what blood flow restriction does, but we're working the whole body. So you can work your lats, you can work your pecs, you can work your abs, you can work the whole lot. So we call it systemic hypoxia. So low blood flow to the whole system. But yeah, the same theory, 
and there's been some great research done in, in the blood flow occlusion. So we can take a lot of those lessons and a lot of that information and apply it into this simulated altitude environment. Okay, uh, another tool which I've seen people using, they've been around a, a while, though the, uh, those masks, the well, I think they're respiratory training devices, do they have a similar sort of effects? Or? Uh, they're a little bit different. So the masks that you, you see that make you look like Bane on Batman, I think there's been some research done with those. They, uh, they're very effective, what we call a, a respiratory training device. So they'll work your intercostals, they'll work your diaphragm, and anyone who's worn one will absolutely agree that it makes breathing very hard. And that's what they're great for. Really, really effective for that. In terms of having the changes in blood saturation levels, I don't think they're as effective as the, as pure altitude training. And there is some research that sort of tells us a lot about how those devices work, but that's a, that's a different type of training to what we're talking about here. Sure. Okay. So when it comes to like the logistics of, uh, of getting involved in this kind of business or, or adding it to your, to your club or your studio, mm. presumably is, is quite a, a setup cost. Absolutely. I would think. Yeah. So that's probably the limitation. I think that there's a couple of limitations in the, the marketplace at the moment. And, and, uh, I, you know, I sort of preempt what I say, but I, I'm not sort of endorsing any sort of brand or anything like that. But I think the challenge for a gym owner is how do I, get a return on my investment. So the answer in terms of if someone says to me, well, how much does it cost? Well, it's, well, how long is a piece of string? Because depending on the size of your setup, that will, of course, influence, you know, how much you're going to spend. But absolutely. So if you're a PT and you're working in a cha- in a gym that doesn't have a, an altitude chamber, then you can't otherwise replicate this type of training. You need, you need the infrastructure. You need a, an altitude chamber. And I think, uh, well, certainly what I'm seeing in the commercial setting is a, an increased, well, it's a really competitive environment, okay? There's a lot of gyms in this country and around the world. And if you're looking for a point of difference in the marketplace, I would think that it's it's an absolute one that you should can consider and could consider. The key, I think, is return on investment. If I spend 100 grand, how do I recoup that? And I think that there's, without sort of going into a whole blueprint of how you do it, I think that there are a lot of strategies around Certainly group fitness. I think group fitness is key to do group fitness in this environment, provided you've got the space. I think that there's good application for certainly one-on-one sessions. But I think if I was thinking about this commercially, I'd be thinking about, you know, how can I engage the, the client? Great for client retention. I think that we can get really accelerated results on the back of it. And I think that then leads to perhaps an education of, of clients. You know, how do we – what are the benefits – and then how can I get better results on the back of it? Or, or maybe not better results, but uh, producible results. You know, I can, I can show you that if we do – one of the things I suggest to people is that you do this in blocks. So we might do a four- or six-week block. You know, think about, you know, a challenge, a weight loss challenge, a boot camp, any of those sorts of things. Let's do, let's do six weeks of this type of training, and then let's do six weeks – just out in the, in the normal gym, and let's compare our results. And I think that you would find better results. I think that if you can, it comes down to then that probably the next question is, well, hang on, hang on, how much of this have I got to do? What's the minimum? And I think that the bare minimum, based on the research, absolutely for fat loss and muscle mass, you need at least three sessions a week. Mm-hmm. Those sessions need to be at least between 60 and 90 minutes in duration. And I think that's where we're at in terms of the bare minimum. So the, the casual worker, uh, workout maybe once a week or every couple of weeks, 
I don't think you're going to get a great amount of value. It's a different workout stimulus. So sure, I mean, it's something different. It keeps clients interested. But I think if you want to get the results, you've got to have the commitment to the sessions. Can you train in there every day? Of course you can. Absolutely. You can train in there twice a day if, if you want. So I think that uh, in terms of getting the best results, that's the sort of inv- um, model we're looking at in terms of exposure. Okay, and there's, as you say, as you know, it's okay to train twice a day if you wanted to. Sure. So presumably it's a very safe form. There's no yeah. restrictions on this? No, absolutely. And I think, uh, yeah, very safe. I think there's all we're really doing is the, the amount of oxygen in the room is certainly sufficient for maintaining, you know, good normal bodily function. It's a low-risk training modality. Mm. The caveat to that is that prior to anyone training in there, there should be, as with any type of training, a really comprehensive screening process. So certainly there are your traditional at-risk populations that require a, you know, a, a letter from their GP to say that they're you know, that it's a suitable type of training modality for them. So certainly people who've got, you know, metabolic diseases and, and a history of, of, of cardiomyopathies and ischemic heart disease, those types of um, individuals, you know, think for the, for the trainers out there who are listening to this, think about your people who, who are your at-risk people anyway. Well, it's the same process, you know, prior from a safety perspective, you know, it's not just let's just open the doors and let everybody in. Let's do our due diligence. Let's let's screen people appropriately. And I think that's key because going back to your very first question around what do we do in there? Well, like I, like I said at the start, you can't just take your workout that you did at sea level and try and do exactly that in the chamber. People will really struggle to be able to do that. So I, I would encourage as part of, you know, the familiarisation process for a new client is that you need to do uh, a a tolerance test. Let's call it a tolerance test. And that will be literally what we call a passive exposure. Literally go into the room. Let's do our initial screening in the room. Let's see what happens to saturation levels. Uh, And then let's get some people to do, maybe it's just an incremental test on a treadmill and let's see how they respond. Low intensity and get some information around how that person tolerates, tolerates the environment. Because one of the things we have with simulated altitude as well as normal altitude is what we call responders and non-responders. The tricky thing with simulated altitude training is that there is no direct correlation between fitness level and how people tolerate this training. So by what that what I mean, you can have someone who's super fit, goes into that chamber and really struggles versus someone who might be totally deconditioned done no training for 10 years, walks in, and they're like a mountain goat. They can train all day. There's no direct correlation. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So so there's a lot of genetic, you know, predispositions to how people tolerate this. I personally, I I struggle. I, I you know, I, I, I get, you know, I find it difficult to train in that environment versus some people who you might find it like a piece of cake. I was, I was going to ask you, Chris, I'm going to say, look, you're a big guy, you work out, clearly. Not your actual preferred training environment, though. No, it is my preferred oh, training is. environment, but I absolutely but struggle. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, I, you know, from, for, I do, I'm more of a strength training type of person. Yep. Yep. You can probably tell. I yep. don't run a lot of marathons. So, you know, from a, so I'm, I'm 48 years old. So I still like to maintain a, a, as much muscle mass as I possibly can. And I find that, Training in in the altitude or the simulated altitude environment enables me to train uh, at a lower intensity. So I don't need to lift, you know, 85, 90% of my 1RM 
to maintain muscle mass. And that's one of the keys, and we've seen that in the research. We can tend to lift at a lower maximum intensity with a higher repetition range and still recruit type 2 muscle fibres. So that, you know the large force produce larger muscle mass, mm-hmm. and so this is where I think there's great application. I don't think that you know bona fide application into bodybuilding, into contest preparation for bodybuilders and competitive you know physique type of competitions, bikini, fitness, figure, all that sort of stuff. No, absolutely. I, I think it's because uh, the knock on effect, and this is where for older populations and mm-hmm. you know people who might you know less wear and tear on the joints, things like that. Huge, huge benefits. So yeah, it's it, for for me, it's absolutely preferred preferred training modality. Yeah. Okay, and the the injury and rehab kind of market as well. A physios and exercise physiologists getting in on this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would I would absolutely think they should be. In terms of so a, a number of things that we see with this exposure, and one of the things we see is a transcription factor. It's called without being you know in complicated physiology. It's called um, hypoxic inducible factor one. And so what it does, HIF one alpha, influences a whole range of adaptations within the human body. One of those adaptations is called angiogenesis, which is an increase in amount of blood flow to to working muscle. So from a healing perspective, we can extrapolate from that information we see with physiology and say, well, from a muscle healing perspective, if we can increase the amount of oxygenation of that muscle, we'll get an improvement in muscle healing. And so from an injury rehab perspective, absolutely, I think there's huge applications. Plus, if we've got people who are you know, limited in terms of the amount of load that they can do, well, we can still work at a slightly lower intensity. So the, the, the research tells us we can work between 60 and maybe 65% of our 1RM and everyone who's listening will know what I mean by that. And so rather than 85% plus and still recruit type 2 muscle fibres, that's a pretty incredible claim, but there is re- there's an abundance of research that supports that. And so if I'm coming back from an injury and I, don't, I, you know, I can't load at 85% of my 1RM because that'll increase my risk of re-injury and I can load at you know, 50, 60, 70, 65% of my 1RM, still recruit type 2 muscle fibres, then that'll you know facilitate my rehab, and I think that's a great advantage. Okay, so I guess it's um, if if a gym were to or club were were to invest in this, yeah, um, or to either you know for the full for the full gym as you've mentioned um, does happen, or as part of the gym, yeah. they need to you need to kind of shout this from the rooftops and make yourself known as you the like the <clears throat> specialist in the area, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's a huge point of difference in this in this industry where. You know, there's a, there's a lot of options. You know, people have got a lot of options around where they train. And yeah, I'd be shouting it from the rooftop, absolutely. And, and you know, incorporating it across all members. So absolutely for your people who are maybe, you know, doing cross-training, your cross-fitters, people like that who are thinking maybe, maybe comp- competition, maybe not, but into your general population, I want to, I just want to lose some body fat maintain my, you know, healthy lifestyle, that sort of thing, into your, you know, bodybuilding, you know, the, the, the full spectrum. I think it's got application across all of that. So if you're looking to, you know, invest in this sort of infrastructure, yeah, I'd be, I'd be doing a lot of marketing around it as a point of difference. Absolutely. 
It's fascinating stuff, Chris. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Is there, for people that want to find out more about either, you know, adding this to their training facility or, and also how to actually train clients in this environment, where can they go? Great point. And, and currently the, the current training, so Cert threes and fours don't include this in their, in their courses as a general rule. So there are industry courses available and, and, uh, I, I run some of those for the industry. So through Fitness Science Australia, which is a provider of these CEC courses. So, uh, fitnessscience.com.au. It's a place to go. Chris, thank you very much for speaking with the Fitness Industry Podcast. For a range of online strength and conditioning courses, go to the network website and select the Courses tab. Members of Australian Fitness Network make huge savings of up to 30% on courses. Go to fitnessnetwork.com.au today to grow your skill set and fitness career. And for face-to-face learning, remember that network members also save on standard rates for Filex, the fitness industry convention.